Hello, we're live. Hello and welcome to Nick Land's Bitcoin and Philosophy session three of eight. Nick, you're on and you can take over. Okay, cool. So um, there's lots of treasure building up in our classroom thing, which I, I'm assuming people ha have seen. I've been trying to um, get a grip on what the most uh, solid common themes coming out of that, uh, the, the, these various contributions people are making are. Um, and it seems to me that one thing in different ways that lots of people want to talk about, and I don't think there's any need to be uh, self-denying about it, I think we can, we can do that, is loops. Um, it's it's a huge uh, tangle that we get into when we do that because it it immediately engages so many different um, issues and and topics. Um, but but people definitely are being carried there by in different ways. One thing is obviously um, the interest in Ethereum, which I notice is is huge. And uh, with and part of that, of course, is to do with uh, the introduction of Turing complete systems onto the blockchain. Sometimes people uh, use this distinction, which again may be something people would want to come back to and, and discuss and question. Talking about first and second wave Bitcoin technologies with Ethereum classified as a second wave technology. Um, as everyone knows, the Bitcoin system is deliberately averse to having Turing complete uh, software on it for reasons that are at least superficially extremely sensible. Um, so there's a one sort of way this question about loops comes in is to do with whether there is some kind of movement in the in the developing history of blockchain technology towards tolerating much more loopy, reflexive, uh, recursive uh, systems than than are, than can be found in the early stage. And then um, sorry, just one second. Um, I, so I'm I'm tying myself in knots for some reason. I, I expect that's <laughs> that's probably inevitable on this thing. I thought I thought we could uh, we could just kick off on this. Um, yeah, sorry, sorry. I'll I'll go back to what I was saying, which is which is um, the other way that this comes in uh, a lot for people I notice, and Amy's sort of long paragraph is one thing that talks about this very explicitly um, but it's not the only one there's there's the um, whole discussion about uh, primer that, that came up a little bit last time and time travel movies and the and the way in which these issues to do with nonlinearity arise in talking about time and what so coming in more from our philosophical dimension of, of this 
of this uh, of this course. Um, so I thought one way to just start kind of very solidly with this is to look at two little texts. One of them, which is I think very remarkable and interesting, is the is the short little mail that um, Satoshi Nakamoto put up uh, to to announce Bitcoin in his own circle. The one that starts, it's very short. Um, it just starts by saying, I've been working on a new electronic cash system that's fully peer-to-peer -peer with no trusted party. All, all of the, the, the density that is already in those apparently very simple uh, words is something we've already looked at. He then gives a um, URL, um, which is the only other than the title is the only other time the word Bitcoin is actually used as part of that uh, uh, part of that URL, and then he says the main properties, and there are five um, short sentences that outline his sense of what um, Bitcoin is about, um, and there's one way of looking at this that um, elicits a certain amount of sort of skepticism or, or questioning. For instance, um, there's a question about whether there's a redundancy in this list. How, even though it's very short, um, the the second he he starts off saying double spending is prevented with a peer-to-peer -peer network, no mint or other tr trusted parties. We already know that that second sentence is actually implicit in the first if, if it's understood properly. Then he says participants can be anonymous, which is the most problematic of these sentences. And this is something we definitely will address clearly to do with the protection of uh, anonymity within the system. People say, I think very reasonably, that it's, that it's actually better described as being quasi-anonymous or pseudonymous rather than anonymous because anonymity is only protected by the fact that between the user and the um, wallet or account um, there is there is a gap that is actually uh, something beyond the Bitcoin system itself. So Bitcoin itself does nothing at all to protect people's privacy other than allowing people not to declare their identities without wearing a mask. Um, but I'm going to skip over that a little bit at this stage. Then he says new coins are made from hash cash style proof of work. We know working through the Bitcoin paper that that's a good description of the basic principles found in the first few sections of that, of that paper. And then he says the proof of work for new coin generation also powers the network to prevent double spending. And I think with this final sentence, you can see that actually the way to read this whole thing is not as some kind of a logical table or set of categories, um, but as a loop. It actually begins and ends explicitly with the word, the term double spending. So it closes upon itself like that. Um, and the final sentence 
um, is itself a description of the loop inherent in the system in the sense that the um, the network is itself powered by people's activity, their mining activity in particular, on the network. So it has a, a type of um, closure. And so one of the issues that I think one terminological access point into this whole question of loops is by um, probing notions of openness and closure um, in relation to Bitcoin. I think they're both very uh, suggestive terms that resonate very strongly with many different aspects of the um, Bitcoin system. So this short little note, the, when Bitcoin is being announced, it's announced actually as in the form of a loop, in the form of a circuit. Um, uh, this is also seen perhaps not quite so clearly in section 5 of the Bitcoin paper itself which actually then runs through this set this time it has a slightly different um, direction because it's not talking about the properties of Bitcoin it's talking about the steps involved in running the network and it gives six steps and so this too is describing a loop. Um, by the time that you you run through this whole list, I won't. I, I think it's not necessary for me to do it. Everyone has this text. Um, but by the time you run through this loop, you've completed a full cycle of the Bitcoin process. Um, so, um, what what again is being described is a circuit. I'm just going to say at this point, um, if anyone wants to jump in at any point, don't be inhibited about it. There's no, uh, as befits a question of loops, there's no natural end point from my point of view. So I will tend to carry on um, rambling on this until people actually poke me. Uh, I will say poke me in the eye, but I think that might be a little bit over melodramatic of my current appearance. Um, so I think there's uh, several lines that I'd like to sort of open up on this question about loops. Um, and I think the first one, um, which I think people are it picks up a little bit, especially on, on what Mo was talking about last week, about how sophisticated is the notion of time that is implicit in the Bitcoin protocol. And, I, and as I say, one of the ways that people have responded to that question, and I think it's a very interesting way to do it, is again by introducing these notions to do with recursion and time looping and these kind of things. Um, and I think that we have a very sort of helpful model in the history of science um, that allows us to put this on kind of much more solid ground than it otherwise might be. 
Because obviously, if we ask the question, well, why were loops excluded from the Bitcoin protocol? Why does it not encourage people in its script language to actually be able to have highly recursive software? Um, there's a very sort of practical, down-to-earth set of responses to that to do with viruses and non-terminating uh, processes and uh, then more exotic things to do with um, artificial intelligences with ambiguous motives cropping up on the on the Bitcoin, the sort of thing that I think everyone loves um, Vitalik and the Ethereum thing precisely because he's so uh, on one from one perspective so utterly reckless um, in respect to those sort of issues. Um, so there's that there's that level. Um, But there's another level that is to do with actually um, not scrambling time before it's even been introduced. You know, the thing about if we look at these time travel movies, I think that Primer is a good example because it might be the greatest time travel movie ever made. Is obviously strong, strong nonlinearity in time tends to be so utterly devastating of anything we could even mean by time that you to, to say we're going to set up a, 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 an artificial temporality and its primary property will be strong nonlinearity is or is a kind of self-defeating uh, objective it's it's certainly a kind of at least slightly insane objective um, and as I say, I think that one very helpful way to think about this is by looking at the way temporal anomaly has actually been uh, has actually arisen concretely within the history of science. Um, the sort of things that the time travel fraternity tend to like are, are, are not what I'm going to concentrate on. Um, for instance, Gödel's very weird little article defending the possibility of time travel based on his understanding of what was permitted by Einsteinian cosmology is is interesting, but I think it it isn't particularly germane to this thing. The, what I think is germane, and again to be slightly repetitive, is is a very rich I think field are notions to do with complexity and emergence and and specifically with the notion of a convergent wave. Sorry, I'm just being slightly distracted now by Jake's little thing. I think I'll have to I'll have to look at that in a minute. Um, and the, the the point about that stuff which has actually really arisen in a solid way only in the era of computers, only in the second half of the 20th century and more specifically towards the end, the final decades of the 20th century, is that it is stacked on a solid tradition that is based upon temporal um, linearity and particularly at the arrow of time. That 
um, it's when uh, people try to understand how you could get a convergent wave. And by com let me just say, it's I think this is extremely helpful terminology. And a convergent wave is an anomalous temporal event. I think it's completely safe. People might want to uh, slow me down on this, and 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 um, there's definitely ways people could reasonably demand a certain level of, of pedantry about it. But I think it's extremely reasonable to say that a convergent wave is the scientific model of a teleological process, a process that seems to be goal-oriented. And if we go uh, look at these very uh, familiar descriptions about the arrow of time, and by the arrow of time, we're talking about a fork within the history of science where um, statistical mechanics peels away from classical mechanics. All, of cl all classical equations are reversible. You know, I, the, the Einsteinian notion of treating time as if it were a spatial dimension is, is very classical, despite the fact, obviously, he's engaging with a, a, a warped um, a warped geometry by classical standards, but but the notion that uh, time is space-like, that it's not essentially, um, it has no essential directionality, it has no um, arrow to it, is something that you will obviously find in the in the sort of earliest foundations of, of the physical sciences, and all of Newton's equations are completely reversible. If you describe some the motion of some body or have the exact mirror image description of the same set of physical equations, you cannot tell what is the uh, proper or natural way that, that that process should take place. They both seem equally plausible. So it's obviously in all, it's only when driven partly by the technological requirements to deal with um, steam engines and thermic technology, and this is obviously why we've inherited this original language of thermodynamics as being the basis of this tradition, that, that it became necessary to seriously address the question of non-linearity. Um, not, sorry, not non-linearity, irreversibility, um, the arrow of time. And obviously this is sort of um, uh, explained to people usually by these very simple models of a divergent wave. And the most simple one, and I think the most common one by far, is you're told about um, you can drop an egg on the floor and it will shatter into pieces and splat over the floor. And you can have a video of that event. And you have no doubt at all about the whether you're running that video the right way round or not. Um, you, you, let's just say, for some reason, you've got two versions of this video. They're both reversal of each other. As we've seen, for classical Newtonian mechanical systems, you would have no way to decide which of those videos was uh, 
going backwards or forward. They would both seem equally plausible. If all the planets were orbiting the sun in the opposite direction, if you perfectly re reversed their um, trajectories and their courses through space, there's no reason why one would look more natural or plausible than the other. But if you have an egg coming together on the floor, um, um, slowly undisintegrating itself, um, smearing back together until it became a solid egg, even without the thing of it and lifting off the floor into your hand, you're completely clear about the fact that you're watching this thing the wrong, the wrong way around. So the arrow of time is something that is extremely intuitively obvious to people with that sort of example. Now, things get complicated, obviously, because then early in the second half of the 19th century, um, bi biological science, even though it didn't begin with this language or, or some um, question about this, but Darwin himself certainly was not attached to it. Um, biology became fascinated by processes that do look exactly like convergent waves. Let, sorry, if, if I didn't say, the, the smashing, splattering egg is a divergent wave. So if you want to say, well, what's a divergent wave? Splatter an egg. Um, that's what everything, you know, that is something following the, the trend of entropy looks like. When you then look at uh, biological evolution, it seems to be concerned with convergent waves. You end up, you look at, you start off with something simple, um, diffuse, non-complex, non and over the course of millions of years, it becomes more complex, more organized. Um, obviously, part of that whole thing is you get eggs. I mean, you know, the egg that you drop on the floor has come from somewhere. There, wasn't, there were no eggs um, at the beginning of the universe. If you have an egg to drop on the floor, that's come from somewhere. And if splattering that egg is a model divergent wave, then having that egg in the first place, a drop on the floor, attests to a convergent wave, a wave that seems to go contrary to the basic trend of entropy as defined by obviously the second law of thermodynamics. And this is really already the, all the theories of complexity and emergence and all of these interests. Um, the Santa Fe Institute is, is the place where this kind of research is most um, focused. It, it, it is the study of convergent waves. And obviously, now this is where I'm trying to tie this back to these questions about time, time, time loops, the sophistication or, or crudity of models of time. Within the scientific tradition, there is never any question that those convergent waves are embedded within more basic divergent waves. No one in the Santa Fe Institute or no scientist studying these processes 
is claiming that the second law of thermodynamics has holes in it, that that entropy is not the, the fundamental law that it had been taken as from very early in the 19th century. Um, that claim is not being made. No one is saying that time does not have an arrow. It's rather that within certain local open systems, the broader entropic tide tolerates regional anomalies. It tolerates a uh, time process that seems to go against the basic grain of irreversible time. Um, now, I think the value of, of this is to say, well, if we're looking at time in the context we're dealing with it here to do with the blockchain and to do with possible developments on the blockchain, I think that same stacking is absolutely crucial. That, that there is a foundational, basic, framing, tensed, directional time that is the foundation and platform upon which any more exotic, looped, anomalous time process is going to be built. You know, just as when we're, you know, looking at uh, e economies, other types of human social processes, forms of spontaneous order, biological systems, ecosystems, any of these complex self-organizing counter-entropic local phenomena, no one is saying that we are uh, dispensing with the foundation of irreversible entropic thermodynamic time. It's quite the opposite. That, that, that kind of temporality, the arrow of time, is the only thing that allows us to know that we're talking about time at all in the first place. And I think that that's, the analogy is extremely strong in this case. It's only because the fundamental architecture of the blockchain is not loopy, not anomalous, um, is in some sense um, intolerant of convergent waves, that it serves as a platform for any of these more weird and exotic time processes to emerge on top of it. Yes, I can see, I can see the Prigogine and Stengers thing, of course, is an absolutely crucial landmark um, um, in this, in this development, for sure. I don't know, maybe I should just give people a moment if anyone wants to um, jump in because I don't want to totally get into monologue mode. So then would you consider, <clears throat> so in the sense that Bitcoin does not allow for fractional reserve banking or for that kind of, um, of future word leveraging of assets for investment, for like, you know, productive futurity over lending, 
is that something that you'd regard as a kind of uh, a destabilizing a causality? Something that you wouldn't want that, that was it was a mistake to introduce into the you know basic um, substrate of the currency, and that Bitcoin that's an example of something Bitcoin doesn't do that would destabilize its linear causality. In the sense that we thought of fractional reserve as another example or another modality of double spending. Right. Um, yeah, now that's an interesting question. I have to think about what the terms of conversion are to this. Like, obviously, um, if, if I can just try to really simplify and then move up to your question on this. Like, so section three of the Bitcoin paper, very short. Um, I think it's just it's three, just three sentences. Which is which is where he introduces a timestamp server, um, and obviously all of this actual um, machinery is coming together to do with hash functions, timestamps, um, uh, the the proof of work system is 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 coming up in the next section. Um, so this is the actual machinery that is producing. Uh, the temporality of the Bitcoin protocol, of the implemented Bitcoin protocol. Now, so if we're going to then talk about, well, what are the, what's the relationship between these complicated possibilities of, of, of finance within the kind of advanced fiat system? Um, and we're going to then say those types of financial process have some kind of temporal implication for Bitcoin and there's lots of steps to that. I mean I think it's it would be simply bizarre to say they don't have some complicated type of financial impl um, temporal implication for sure that would be crazy but do they but do they actually impinge at this level of the Bitcoin Protocol, and it would have to be. Then we would think, well, what would, what would the protocol have to be like if it was going to allow um, any? I mean, anything less than a hundred percent reserves. I mean, the reason we can't have even these basic financial mechanisms that we we're used to in the in the um, history of paper money banking most fundamentally is you cannot have anything other than 100% reserves you know you what your the amount of bitcoins you own or are entitled to in terms of the system are simply those in your wallet as soon as you move them out into someone else's account you've moved them that there's no credit process involved in that at all and there's no possibility for fractional fractional reserve Lending. Now, I can't off the top of my head imagine what type of, what kind of modification we'd be talking if we were going to try to accommodate those processes. I mean, I'm just not really seeing yet what we're talking about in terms of the way the blockchain would function if it actually was to work as a credit system as we understand it. Yeah, I mean, even before the issue of fractional reserves, is there even a mechanism to guarantee interest payments? Like, could you, I mean, if I had 100 bitcoins, and I'm, you know, I'm not talking about therefore being able to loan 1,000 of them out, or 900 or right. you know, whatever, but even just to loan my 100 bitcoins, 
I mean, am I wrong, or is would that just be a handshake contract? You've got no no way that's as automatic as the network itself, or as the blockchain yeah. of enforcing. No, I think you're you're totally right about that. It's I think this it's it's a part of the sort of radicality of it. However, people take this positively or negatively, is that it just simply is intolerant of credit in general. It doesn't understand credit. There's no space for credit at all in the system. So anything involving that, anything involving lending, lending bitcoins has to be added as some extraneous element outside the blockchain. And therefore, so I, I'm assuming you would just still be dependent upon traditional third-party guarantors and traditional financial institutions to um, organize and protect those kind of transactions. It's not something that the, the, the blockchain or the Bitcoin protocol will protect at all. As far as, as far as the protocol is concerned, if you said lend me a hundred Bitcoins and I sent you a hundred Bitcoins, you now have a hundred Bitcoins, I don't have those hundred Bitcoins. Anything else, like you say, is a is a handshake around the back of the system. It's outside the system. It doesn't, you know. Which is where Ethereum comes in. Yes. Essentially. <laughs> yes. And obviously then um, all of those systems, of which Ethereum is by far the most developed, conceptually at least, to do with treating... Um, the blockchain as something that's supporting contracts of any kind. So there's this higher level of abstraction involved where you have a contractual system based on the blockchain in which obviously um, a currency system would just be one particular species of contractual relationship that people would enter into. I also wanted to mention, regarding the time thing and the linearity of time, it's not just a Bitcoin thing, it's um, throughout all of computation, even down to individual components, time and very linear time is an essential demarcator for any sure. sort of operation of complex, of complex operations. So uh, I like the idea that, yes, although it's sexy to speak of non-linear processes and stuff yeah. actually there is some need for some sort of um, background metronome to, yeah. to enable things to take place so yes. that's possibly why today few people can actually fully comprehend what's actually going on in very complex and exotic derivatives trading is that and to be honest no one quite fully understands what is happening so it's not yes. it, it seems like a positive thing Sorry, I missed the last sentence. It seems oh, like, like uh, the the this limitation to to uh, linear time and um, uh, non-recursion or very limited forms of recursion yeah. is actually a, a useful thing as a bedrock. Otherwise, yeah, and it's probably as good a bedrock as we'll get after gold to an extent. Yeah, it's almost if there's one thing we can all agree on, it's time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, it, it's foundational, isn't it? So like you say, in whatever, obviously all kinds of, I mean, a, 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 
any kind of instantiation of a um, virtual Turing machine, a universal Turing machine, must necessarily support any kind of recursive, nonlinear uh, program imaginable. But as you say, the foundation of that is the fact that there is at the bottom level of the machine this extremely rigid um, linearity of, of time. I mean, obviously, in Turing's own model, it's literally a tape, a single dimensional tape being moved backwards and forwards in the in the machine. So there's the, there's the same pattern of there being the exotic has a foundation that if you try to build the exotic into the foundation, it's not exotic anything. It's just, in a way, you're collapsing the possibility of actually building anything at all by simply... Um, the VCR is going to eat your tape. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Also, um, I'm posted on the... Um, on the classroom, it was in response to Laura's um, uh, research topic um, and the problem with the operationalizing of Bitcoin and the Mt. Gox and various heists that have happened. Yeah. And I, I work in security and even in a general context, what causes there to be more instances of trolling and bad behavior online is the cheap cost of the new identity. Right. Um, or it's, it's a, it, often what prevents in society, what prevents people in society from behaving badly is is the reputational cost. Um, yes. Is all businesses formed off reputation? So it's very interesting to that article Lauda posted on the possibility of a pseudonymous, but nonetheless a pseudonymous identity that is almost impossible or has a very high cost of recreating another one is what would then limit um, limit the sort of behaviour that seems to happen. In, in Bitcoin yeah. that doesn't happen in the real world. Well, um, yeah, there, it's an interesting thing. Nick Shabo has written a, a, a really interesting article that I must, I'll put up on the, on the board if people haven't seen it. Um, I, I must just recall which one it is. I think it's his one about smart contracts where he actually enumerates a whole range of these different virtual identities and their different functions and of course for some of them reputational accumulation is absolutely crucial and for others not but obviously the Bitcoin mechanism itself has a totally different way of dealing with these things which is to say rather than having some reputational identity that therefore on that basis will not behave badly aims instead to make bad behavior simply impossible. Now it obviously defines bad behavior extremely narrowly and almost entirely in terms of double spending. Mm. So rather than say, you know, I won't cheat you because then I would be known as a cheat and that would have damaging repercussions, the, yeah. the Bitcoin protocol at the bottom level simply says you cannot cheat, it's actually technically impossible for you to cheat and the ways in which cheating might be possible are so again so exotic they, they involve you know we're back to this 51% attack notions and even that obviously uh, is something that 
is supposedly solved, at least in a game theoretical way, by the in the paper already. So if you look at the examples you give about this, these bad behaviors, they all actually happen um, just beyond the edge of the Bitcoin protocol itself. Yeah. No. In these exchanges and in various kind of mediating institutions that have appended themselves to, to the Bitcoin system, but are not themselves uh, tightly controlled by the protocol and therefore are still capable of these things. You know, Mt. Gox and these places were basically telling people, we will look after your Bitcoin. It, was a, it wasn't a credit system in a straightforward sense, but it was certainly was people were entrusting their, their coins to this institution. Mm. But yeah, I guess I guess though that is kind of then the problem with Bitcoin is you have it's not anonymous. So unlike cash, it's not anonymous. However, like cash, if you lose it, there's no way to stake a claim of ownership to Bitcoins no. that were once yours. And that happens yeah. has happened often as well. So Yes. Yes, that is a problem. There are all kinds of problems of this kind. It's definitely true. And they are the sort of problems that obviously, if one broadens it and generalizes, have been the motivation for the production of these trusted third-party institutions in the first place. You know, the, the police, police systems, systems of restitution, all of these kind of mechanisms uh, that um, will after something bad has happened, well either they will try externally to prevent something bad happens through through threat or de 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 deterrence or policing activity, or after something bad has happened they will ensure some kind of restitution or, or supplementary justice is applied to the system. And again Nick Shabo is really uh, helpful on this is where he says there are just two basic models for this. Um, those, and he calls them proactive and reactive security. So that's reactive security. It's basically a set of institutions that will allow that something could go wrong and will then respond to it in order to try to remedy the situation. Proactive security is a, is a system which is, Bitcoin is like this and all of these models are, are like this, where you simply are unable initially to have those forms of bad behavior or cheating or um, defection, if you're going to put it in game theoretic terms, happening at all. And they always involve some kind of mechanization. Um, it's a formalization at the level of, of, of codes and signs, but it's a mechanization in terms of some infrastructure that simply will only permit certain types of, types of things to happen. He even gives an example of a, um, um, sorry, I forgot the name for those machines, you know, where you just put a coin in and get a can of soda or get some chocolate or whatever it is. That the actual mechanism is supposed to be proactively secure. So yes, there probably, I'm sure, are ways of cheating those things, but the mechanism is supposed to, rather than you, you cheat your way into a soda and the, and the cops arrive and, and get you to put it back in the machine. It just is impossible to get the soda unless you actually go along with the mechanical uh, procedure that is incarnated in the, in the mechanism. Um, yeah, I guess I would be interested in, in that paper if you then post it in the classroom 
I guess yeah. it kind of, that's, that's led some people to sort of lazily say, see, this is why, kids, we need trusted third parties. I know a friend who won $20,000 when Bitman got something went down, but then it was just lazily said, see why you need trusted third parties. And it, it also ties into the notion of privacy and if there was ever to be an imagined, a sort of ultra-high scale form of cooperation, which does not involve trusted third parties. How would people behave if there was no real privacy on the network or no secrecy at all? Um, how would, when reputational costs are paramount, and it's not just about doing, as they mentioned, you know, a drug trade in Silk Road, but actually that transaction, your, your digital signature follows you across every dealing that you do in all sorts of security contexts online, then it would be interesting to speculate on how behavior would then be um, minus enforcement and minus these reaction, reactive enforcement mechanisms if there was right. zero privacy. Yeah. To total transparency. I mean, this is obviously something people have um, have explored, haven't they, um, as being something that it's a quite separate line, but I think you're totally right to say it intersects this this topic definitely, and and obviously within the Bitcoin system itself, um, it is like that. There's zero. There's zero secrecy. There's zero privacy in terms of any account. Its behavior will be perfectly publicly. Uh, Transparent to everyone. There's no, there's no, no way that a, an account, once it's actually on the system, can do something that doesn't just then get registered on the on the blockchain and be can exactly traced. You know, it, it sent money to this other account at this time, and this was the sum involved, and its previous behaviour has been X, Y, and Z. All of that is totally transparent. Um, I think it's it's really a not dealt with in much depth in the in the Bitcoin paper this issue. It's like um there's a kind of it's not that it says anything that isn't isn't right, but it doesn't explore this because this is something that sort of is by definition right on the edge of the system. And I think it is um it's exactly a question of masks. You know, like a masked uh, just like a masked ball, you know that that within the system there are a set of masks, and those masks, their behavior is totally public, and the person with the owl head does X, Y, and Z, and everyone can see that. And the, and within us, kind of uh, micro history that's taking place totally within that system, owl head could no doubt develop a reputation. It's not very relevant in Bitcoin um, because Owlhead can't do anything bad but you can see exactly what Owlhead does and it's totally clear but who is Owlhead you know then this is where that when uh, Satoshi Nakamoto then says well it's the system protects anonymity meaning that you don't have to ever say that you are Owlhead or who Owlhead it really is is something completely extrinsic to the system, and there and it's only that that offers you any secrecy or privacy at all. 
um, but the, your but the, your mask is completely public, completely exposed, completely open, uh, and has no possibility of covert activity or even private activity. You can't cut private deals with uh, Parrot Head. I mean, everyone can see what Owl Head and Parrot Head are doing together in the system, even though they don't know who either of them actually are. But by that, by that very token, I mean, it's not just Owlhead, it's like 1 through N Owlheads, right? And each Owlhead, the moment he, you know, could be one transaction, and then you can throw that mask away, and you can develop a new one as easily as multiplying two primes. Sure. So, you know, the ability for covert action by an actual operator, as opposed to an operator's alias, I mean, isn't yes. really, it's hardly even impinged upon. You know, right. I well, that's well, kind of well, the point of this whole sort of blockchain yeah. passport, the Mt. Gox issue. Yeah. That. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's obviously what what you're saying now is exactly the assumption that Satoshi Nakamoto has in the paper. You know, absolutely perfectly. He he thinks it's so clear what, that what you're saying is true that it doesn't really need a, a, a detailed discussion or detail right, beyond the scope of blockchains yeah yeah um, I had a question what you said before like the um, proactive security sort of having the general character of turning um, an external intervention into a mechanism that exists in situ is do you regard that as, as in general as a kind of transcendentalization in the sense of um, of moving from a system that identifies an empirical result, you know, the enforcement of security and some yeah. sort of transcendent function like the police, the military, right. whatever, to yeah. a mechanism that imposes itself as the condition of a situation unfolding empirically in the first place without appealing to something outside of it. Yes, I think so. I think that's absolutely right. Yes, definitely. Definitely. So the and mechanization of security, so at least in the case of security, Maybe we, as a hypothesis at least, we could say that mechanization is in general a kind of transcendental move. Yes. Okay. I think so. Yes. It, at least as we're understanding it now, in mechanization as, as uh, actually uh, implementing procedures that then serve as a platform for behavior. So those procedures are then put beyond negotiation by any activity that is happening within the system. So obviously then the second move is then we can bring in loops again um, quite naturally and say well look if we've got a sufficiently complicated machine then there will be some kind of non-linearity that is tying the processes happening within that system back to the actual foundations of the, of the system. Um, but, but first of all, I think that's what what you're saying is absolutely right. Okay. So can I ask a question? Yes, of course. It seems like what's emerging out of your first part of today is, especially like it became more concrete with the example of the Coke machine, and then this last bit of conversation between you and Jake, is that Bitcoin kind of like has its own like built-in guarantor, so it does not need like like 
how banking depends on state and police to guarantee it, to make sure nobody breaks into the Coke machine, right? Yeah. The Bitcoin has the state built into it in a form of technology that kind of like basically is like we don't need we don't need you to sort of like make sure that nobody cheats. The system that the Coke machine itself is like I mean, if you can break the Coke machine, you're gonna get to Coke, but it's built in a way that it does not need like a police next to the a policeman yeah, right. doesn't right. have a hand next to the right? Right. Or yeah. in like a completely, completely different example. Um, you know, the airstrike versus going through the process of um, getting to know Kurtz and healing at the end of Apocalypse Now. The airstrike is, is I mean, almighty, almighty. It's the, it's the example par excellence of a transcendent intervention. Comes down, boom. You know, rebel camp is gone. Whereas, you know, gaining Kurtz's trust, like meeting him halfway in terms of slowly becoming something like him and then having to fight him on his own terms, that, that is precisely the example of, um, of having to absorb the transcendental condition, you know, to enter the security cordon, effectively, yeah. which his men create. Sorry, that just occurred to me. I feel like it was kind of an interesting example. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, if people feel there's there's time, there's a little potted history of modernity that I think is kind of relevant to this. Paradoxical, extremely succinct um, narrativization of some of this, which is taking off from the notion of teleology, because I think. Um, it's an extremely uh, fascinating key to a lot of things, this notion. And obviously, it's, it's a word in extremely bad repute. And, it's, and it's, I, I think the main reason for that, I mean, there might be more recent, recent uh, reasons for it, but I think that fundamentally we're still inhabiting the world that was kind of built at the origins of the modern epoch. And obviously, they were inheriting a uh, scholastic culture, Catholic, scholastic, Aristotelian cultural framework in which teleology was extremely important. And so the impulses that are most associated with, with modernization, ref, ref, Reformation Christianity, Protestantism, um, the birth of modern science. From the very beginning, they had no flag of kind of cultural, high cultural significance more important than the refusal of teleology. Like in, in refusing teleology, they are declaring themselves modern. And it's really worth going back to this original stage to, to think, well, what exactly is going on here? Because I think, f for one thing, there's two elements to it that are normally, and we have inherited a situation where they're seen as being so far apart that they produce these vast um, philosophical conundrums to do with... Um, the mechanical on the one hand and the libertarian in its philosophical sense and to do with 
agency and free will and human action on the other side. These things, you know, as late moderns, we, we say, well, how can these things possibly be brought together? But for early moderns, they were absolutely born in the same moment of defiance of teleology. And obviously, I'm going to be very crude about this, um, and fast and crude. But if you uh, think of the situation of um, people in the very early Enlightenment, late Renaissance, wanting to engage in uh, scientific and technological uh, innovations without social scrutiny, then the again the flag that you, you that you raise for that is anti-teleological. It's to say that um, that there are no uh, consensus social goals or social processes um, that can be accepted as axiomatic over the activities that we want to engage in. And that therefore the, um, the turn to mechanism um, away from teleology to mechanism is a refusal of interference. It's a, especially obviously in the early stage, it's a refusal of the notion that the church as the kind of incarnated conscience of society has any legitimate authority over scientific and technological experimentation and innovation. And in that, in that moment, um, obviously, um, there's a certain radical liberalism and a radical mechanistic philosophy that are absolutely united together under this common thing about the um, um, refusing the legitimacy of social, moral, and ecclesiastical intervention over what uh, is taking place or what people want to do. Um, but the thing that I think makes this particularly interesting is that this tendency, this refusal of teleology, actually itself incarnates a teleological process far more stark, far more dramatic, far more conspicuous than anything that we have previously seen in history. You know, modernity, I, uh, for the purpose of this little story, I'm, as I say, of course, simplifying, modernity initiated as a defiance of the teleological mode, initiates a teleological process of vastly greater power and directionality than anything that had ever been seen before. You know, if you kind of compare the 1500 years before 1500 to the 500 years after, it's, uh, there's absolutely no question about which of those two epochs forces upon us some sense of there being this strong directionality, these trend lines, these growth patterns, these curves, all of which seem to indicate the operation of convergent waves of extreme power and, you know, make all social theorists ask, well, what is happening here? Where is this going? What is this 
basic natural tendency and orientation. So it's just to say um, that I think that there is a kind of absolutely inescapable question of teleology embedded in the very notion of modernity. And it's embedded in this utterly paradoxical fashion that it is both something that's been kind of abominated at the origin and something that is then illustrated with extraordinary concreteness in the actual process that then takes place. Um, Is it, can it be said that teleology was grounded, but, but in the process of its grounding, it became more, it became more, more prevalent as it came down from the heavens? Yes, I mean, it's, it's very interesting how you would define teleology in a way that really would be unacceptable if pushed. You know, the Aristotelian definition is already that things will tend to the realization of their own nature as a final cause. And obviously, again, if we go back to the beginning of the modern period, that, that seems like an extremely conservative thing and it looks as if we can reject very easily these notions about what the true nature of something is, what the harmonious organic society obviously associated with all these forces of Protestant rebellion with the the old regime and the, the, the mode of scholastic philosophizing and these forces of conservatism that are being uh, contested. Um, but if you just take it in this abstracted sense of things tending to realize their own nature, then I find it very hard to see what it is that people are really saying is uh, not acceptable about that. I mean, isn't that exactly what all these complex theorists are doing? Isn't it what any social theorist trying to work out what the basic inherent trends of modernity are? Aren't all of these investigations of um, complex dynamics dealing with exactly this problem? I mean, the, the, the only difference being, and this I think has strong relevance to the question of Bitcoin, is that you, you're in a position of relative humility about what the true nature of your teleological object really is. You know, that rather than saying, look, we know the church is telling us in a very reliable way what the, what the, what the true telos of the social order is, you're saying instead, what actually is this thing becoming? What is emerging? What kind of system is, is uh, happening here? Um, and so the telos, um, the actual singularity that is organizing the convergent wave of that particular phenomenon is an object of scientific investigation rather than an object of kind of um, ecclesiastical proclamation or some other confident mode of anticipation. But other than that, it seems to me that nothing has been, nothing has been changed. Um, and in this way, I think that 
Um, Bitcoin is an extremely powerful example of a teleological manifestation. I mean, it's like it's so so many people when they see it, you know, say, "Ah, oh, this is what we have been waiting for." You know, this is actually realizing this trend, this wave that has been kind of coming together. For, for centuries, we can now see what it was, what it was tending to. You know this this thing, which is a true network, a decentralized peer-to-peer -peer, uh, transactional system. This is this is what it, the whole system was always trying to do at its most fundamental level of teleological process, and now we can we can see it. And there's, of course, to say, you can take all of that story, and you can your ideological polarity is completely open. I mean, you can say, look, this is the this is the horror story that has been happening, and we have to resist it. We're seeing that this horrible thing that has been happening since the origins of capitalism, and you know now this is it, and it has to be stopped. Or you can celebrate. This thing, in, as, as obviously lots of kind of anarcho cap libertarian types do, and say, look, yes, finally, ever since, certainly since the internet was born, people have already been talking about this, assuming it was going to happen, you know, because it's so clearly uh, what the, the, the trend has been about. Um, so, you know, there's that ambiguity, that political ambiguity is left open. But I think to deny that you are looking at something with this. Profound teleological um, aspect to it is is to me hard to hard to imagine. So sorry, just one more thing, which is to say the reason I set off on this level thing right now is just to say, in terms of this whole coke machine discussion and all of this kind of thing. Is that you're really talking about uh, for the origin something that could be called mechano liberalization? You know, the, for us those two seem weirdly separate, but I think when they look at them within this kind of potted history of modernity, they they're not at all. They are they are the same thing. You know that that if you look at uh, all the um, hero stories. Of kind of ardent modernity in its early phase, the burning of Giordano Bruno, the the, the persecution of Galileo, all of these kind of things, that they, they are one at the same time about the obstruction of a mechanistic analysis through social control exercised upon the individual, and so there's a there's a there's a liberal impulse. Towards escape from an isolation from that system of social oversight, which I think is exactly what we're still seeing in this whole question about third parties, as, as absolutely the same thing with the emergence of this mechanistic mode of problem solving. Um, that you know, for us, as I say, we're you know, it's it's hard not to see those as somehow radically opposed. But I think that that's a, a mistake, 
and within this larger teleological scheme, they, they are deeply entangled together. I wonder if that's tied to um, that um, the left's aversion to to any sort of libertarian discourse of of resisting structures. Um, so it, it seems to me often it's a bit like when you discuss Christianity and you point to the horrors of imposing an idea on the world, such as a religious one, then the most typical apologetic is, yes, but that was not the correct Christianity. And that often then is comes up when you speak of, say, left projects of the 20th century. The response is, no, but that wasn't the correct interpretation of the writings of the prophet. Um, and I'm wondering as well if, and often then it comes down to questions of governance. So how these structures, these transcend, however human-created structures are then governed. Right. And perhaps mechanistic governance is the only way that they can't be usurped for powerful purposes. So uh, I'm just wondering if that's a vector of re-examining our our notions of the necessity or not of of structures and trusted third parties. Yes, yeah, sure. Yes. And algorithmic governance is obviously something yeah. deeply at the heart of this of this whole issue for sure. Um, which is which is massively politically charged precisely because it is a an attempt to actually um, close it's an attempt to to produce a self protective anti-political system closed against political intervention I mean I think this is you know what I was saying about um, these op the language of openness and closure and the way they cut across Bitcoin there's a certain way it's not unproblematic and it's not something that doesn't need to be pulled out and tweaked and probed and, and whatever but there's a certain sense that what Bitcoin is trying to do I would say what it does to some extent um, is it produces a system that is commercially open and politically closed um, and that again from all positions on the political spectrum is something that is extremely recognizable as a teleological um, trend of modernity from a, from a very early stage so that so that it, it's the immunization of, of a commercial uh, commonwealth to political intervention is something that Bitcoin actually uh, mechanizes and therefore again as the absolute twin of that it has a kind of ultra-liberal uh, aspect to it. Um, um, but obviously from the left people will say well this this project of depoliticization is a, is a, we want a wider sense of politics in which that itself is seen as a very specific political project which which is is to be uh, abhorred um, and um, it obviously is 
um, very reasonably said to be anti-democratic or, or um, anti-social or um, you know it has a it has an extremely strong uh, ideological affinity to it because it's basically saying that the um, social institutions are systematically disempowered in their relation to private transactional activity um, and and there's a certain sense within Bitcoin where that happens absolutely you know it's it's a kind of there's a finality to it there's a, there's simply no way that uh, events within the Bitcoin commercium are answerable to any kind of um, social concerns whatsoever um, so some will celebrate that and some will absolutely be um, horrified by it we, yeah. we certainly know, yeah no sorry no no I was I was agreeing with you basically and, and, and as well like you however mentioned it's just a transactional thing so it does not need to mean that Bitcoin needs to rule every aspect but it's a curious um, it's more the very technology of the blockchain which which needs to I think be seen with a bit more openness from both sides of the political spectrum um, because tracing even um, tracing it's funny how it's it's tracing even the conception of the state across yeah I wanted to ask um, if I may just a fairly basic question I think um, I am wondering and I, this touches on some of the things you were just saying Nick um, about when you were talking about the anti-democratic nature of uh, perhaps of Bitcoin and I was thinking with the the mining video that we watched last week um, I believe it's in China that there's a few mines and and I'm sure there are multiple people around the world now that are accumulating a mass quantity of bitcoins it seems to be starting out in a very in a manner which is pretty anti um, I don't know egalitarian for lack of a better word that there's already a huge imbalance uh, where once all 21 million sure. bitcoins are mined somebody's already going to be at the top and that's fine I realize bitcoin is not a proposal yeah. That every that we're going to eliminate poverty or social inequality, um, socioeconomic inequality. That is, but that seems a huge issue, and um, yeah, and it's our conversations, our philosophical conversations. I think aren't necessarily touching on that yet. I'm wondering, is there anything that that needs to be said about that? Um, I don't know how to answer well, people when they I, ask me I about it. It will be. A Yes, I, I think that will be huge. I mean, absolutely without question. Um, it, it's it's you know, people. There's there's a huge spectrum on this question, um, mm -hmm. and so on one one position, I maybe the spectrum isn't going to work, and it has to become more more multi-dimensional. But there are people I would say quite naively who simply wanting to say there's no trade-off or difficulty here at all and will at the same one and the same time say this is going to be the biggest redistribution of wealth in human history and that it will all come out 
okay in the wash because the current system is so unequal or because there's something inherently, um, I, I'm not even sure what would be meant by this word, but there's something inherently democratic in Bitcoin in the sense that anyone can do it or uh, I'm not sure. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a position that's a kind of weird kind of left libertarian position. But um, on the other side, as you say, um, it seems to, it seems quite clear that uh, with it now there was an article. I know what it was. It was the one that we were shared, we someone shared. Now I'm not. Let me see. Um, sorry, one second. Okay, sorry, I, I won't waste time looking for this, but but maybe you all saw it was posted up on the in the classroom. Um, this Business Insider article about which was basically saying the distribution of wealth implicit in Bitcoin is like off the charts and you know it's like North Korea oh it's yes not that one yeah I'll find it yeah yes um, I thought it was a really interesting starting point for this whole thing um, and some of the responses it made were also quite interesting like part of it is that of course if Bitcoin spreads and grows it's not because it can muster any forces of social coercion on its side. You know, the the balance of power is completely the opposite. And and very recently, people were saying, "Well, look, governments just aren't going to allow this thing to happen." I think we're hearing much less of that now. It seems that there's a much more complicated negotiation going on between these developments and established systems of political and financial power. But it's certainly not the case. I think unless someone, it would seem to me to be an odd, a fascinating but nevertheless odd conspiracy theory to, to think that these, the, the, the current powers that be were actually driving Bitcoin promotion in any way. So insofar as people are buying into Bitcoin, they're doing it as an option with the status quo at their backs. You know what I mean? It's like they're, they're not suddenly being plunged into this new massively unequal world where maybe Satoshi Nakamoto has two million Bitcoins stashed away waiting for them to be worth a million bucks each or something like that. Um, it's, it's, it's rather that it's incrementally that people are deciding that they want to migrate from the existing fiat currency regimes into Bitcoin to some to some extent and so there's obviously because it has to actually sell itself to suspicious uh, suspicious users who already have a default status quo inert option which is just to stick with what they've got now um, these sort of extreme inequality issues are probably going to have to be dealt with um, in the process of 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 of, ado of adoption, you know, I mean, unless Bitcoin 
pe people simply are not going to jump into a system where they think five people own half the bitcoins in existence. I mean, you know, they're, they're, yeah. they're, that's going to act as a break on. And, and I suspect if you look at the price now, the whole world Bitcoin supply is worth a few billion dollars. I think under five billion dollars. I mean, I, I've lost track at the current value exactly what that is. It's like kind of peanuts. I mean, we know there are individuals worth multiples of that who could, if they seriously wanted to, just buy the whole world Bitcoin stock. Now, why would they not do that? Because, of course, there's no chance. If you buy 80% of the world's Bitcoins, then the chance that they're ever going to be worth anything is thereby reduced. So there's a complicated game theoretic thing. I mean, I'm not getting sort of, this isn't, as you can see, it's not a moral political point about, mm -hmm. about, Inequality. It's just a it's just a cold game theoretic thing that that you have to necessarily deal with this distributional issue if you seriously want to optimize your chance of getting insanely rich through Bitcoin. If you there's a point of diminishing returns where you just buy into it so much that you're deterring other people and and you're gonna you know just drive yourself into a cul-de-sac on it. Now. I think working out exactly what ha what those curves look like and what kind of figures we'd put on it and you know how those games more concretely play out is a complicated technical thing. I don't know whether anyone has has tried to do that, but it seems to me that's the terrain that, that this is getting us onto. Can I just say, like, um, you know, it's notable that people with a lot of money. Um, you know, there's the Winklevoss twins, there's Andreessen's Horowitz, Andreessen business, there's venture capitalists interested. They're not stacking up massive troves of Bitcoins. I mean, they, I'm sure some of them are, are doing okay that way, but that, but that just simply isn't a strategy that could make sense to them. And so their their way of investing in the success of Bitcoin is much more complicated than that. And, uh, and maybe they're investing in companies that are going to be operators in a in a Bitcoin oriented world, or some some much more indirect uh, path, because um, because well, so I won't go on about this. It's a fascinating thing, so I'm tempted to keep going on about it. But I just, I just say the two crucial axes of money as a store of value and a, and a means of payment are in dynamic tension about this. You know, as a store of value, Bitcoin is only going to have long-term value if it also succeeds as a means of payment. And as a means of payment, you want wide distribution. You want lots of people to be using it, you want it to be flowing around, circulating, in order to actually develop critical mass, such that it then becomes worth holding on to as a store of value. Um, right, and then by the same token, um, in order for it to be a good medium of exchange, you want it to have some kind of general, of, um, of stable value. 
either in exchange right. for other currencies or for goods, and that is aided by people holding on to them, mm-hmm. stabilizes yeah. the value. And mm-hmm. so it seems like, I mean, at least for the you know initial stages, there being a sort of spillover adoption advantage. You know, like I mean, I've got a friend who bought bitcoins. I guess it's like eight years ago now or something. And as of a you know eighteen months ago, all of a sudden he could buy a house. So the right. adoption advantage, you know, in terms of distribution, and then also an incentive to hold on to them once you start seeing a value take off at all, and that stabilizes. I mean, well, putatively stabilizes, not during that thousand, you know, dollars a coin period or whatever, right. but stabilizes the origins of the system. Yeah. So you do have it working both ways. But I mean, what what do you see a distributional crisis looking like? You know, I mean, so say we're closer to 21 million or 21 million now. I mean, is it a rel- is it a relatively political or a technical solution? I mean, I don't even know what a distributional dialogue yeah. or, you know would look like. Well, I, I'm just being um, game theoretic about it. Like, say you are Mark Andreessen, you, you could summon the capital to buy every Bitcoin in the world. You know. That would be a, a distributional crisis. I mean, either Bitcoin would then become, you know, Andreessen coin. Um, it's like if you're promoting or in any way buying into this currency, all you're doing is helping Mark Andreessen become God Emperor of the of the Earth. That's not <laughs> an attractive proposition, I guess, to most most people. You know, so you can see these big players who potentially have a lot of capital at their fingertips are engaging in very complicated calculations I think about to what what is an optimum Bitcoin holding for them you know if they've got faith in the currency they, they, they no doubt want to have a stockpile of them but they don't want to raise that stake to the point that it actually becomes you know to use your language, take a, a distributional crisis that people actually say this is uh, this is so maldistributed that it's simply not an attractive proposition as a, as a, as a circulatory medium. Um, it seems like the common thread between these different sort of fail, you know, global failure modes for Bitcoin are all based upon the ability to wield asymmetric resources from outside the system. So whether you have a 51% attack and you know, the deep states in principle ability to carry that out, you've got something that doesn't currently exist, which is computational asymmetry. You know, if you've just got the processing yeah. power to run faster than everybody else's, you know, ability to calculate yeah. the blockchain, like the peripheral, yeah. I don't know if you've read that one yet. And then you've got um, you know, capital. Yeah, I have, so, I have asymmetry. So there, it's kind of an interesting case of like a general failure mode for this transcendental security, where it's like sort of a material asymmetry in capital and processing power and network access. Um, yeah. So yeah. Yes, it is. It is. But but I think we then have to be careful about when we talk about it as a failure mode. How hypothetical is that? Because as we've seen, like ultimately. The, what what is so unique about Bitcoin is the fact that it is really technological and economic in such a state of absolute fusion that that this economic uh, thinking in terms of incentives is built totally into it from the start. 
And so let's take these these failure modes that, that you, you raise here. This, the second one we've already talked about in the sense that that is it really a failure mode? Again, leave aside the sort of um, you know more fundamental or more agonizing or however you want to put it moral political questions about Gini coefficients and, and inequality and concentrations of, of economic power. I mean, just shelve that for the moment and just simply look at it as a game involving self-interested economic agents. Already, even with that, completely amoral, cynical, profit-maximizing type of agency, we can see that there are these counterbalancing tendencies in the sense that they themselves are restrained purely just by, by ra economic rationality from over accumulating in, in the system. And it's very relate to the currency itself. Yes, in the sense that, well, it, 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 what we've already talked about, the 51% attack is the same. Like, it's very explicit already in the, in the paper that Satoshi Nakamoto says, you know, this is a, is a technological loophole. It's a technological failure mode. We can see just in terms of computer science how it could be completely messed up by someone who commands 51% of the right. computing power in the system. But as an economic problem, as a problem to do with games and incentives and rational self-interest, it's not a failure mode at all. Because if you command 51% of the computing power in the system, you're producing more than half of all the bitcoins, and therefore you have the strongest incentives of anyone in the system to protect the integrity of the bitcoin system. If you, the only agent that would be interested in sabotaging bitcoin from that position of 51% advantage, is someone who just has a, again, a transcendent, extrinsic motivation to destroy evil. <laughs> yes, or you know, as we were talking about last time, I mean, you can imagine a state. You could imagine on a certain scenario that, let's just say, without wanting to pick on America, but just because it's the most powerful country in the world, um, that the political and financial interests in America say, what it only is going to cost us two million. Two billion dollars to to totally wreck Bitcoin. That's a bargain, you know, in terms of the uh, threat this poses to us. And so those agents then would be operating in the system without economic, uh, without economic optimization within the system being an issue. Of course, it would still be economic optimization in a wider sense. But in terms of the system itself, they would say, okay, we're producing more than 31% of Bitcoins, but we are here just to wreck this thing because Bitcoin is going to destroy our whole social position and, uh, and our established economic infrastructure. Um, so, so what I'm saying here is just like when we say a failure mode, it's a kind of it's a failure mode from a certain technological optic, and of course we're dealing with nerds here. We're dealing with computer people. I mean, they're not taking that trivially or lightly in any way. It's very serious to them. But it's a very incomplete or impartial sense of what a failure mode really looks like if it totally ignores 
the role that economic incentives would play in supporting and maintaining equilibrium in the, in the system. It's really just one aspect of a series of uh, transcendental conditions or criterial conditions that also manifest as incentives or incentive yeah. protections or incentive problems, yeah. Yes, I mean, I think the real transcendental structure is not just a technological structure, it's a techno-commercial structure. And you, it, you, can't, it's with, you can't abstract out the commercial aspect and really see what it is that's being implemented. So do you see that as playing into this whole, you know, is it the blockchain or is it Bitcoin? What's the real innovation? Can you separate the blockchain from the currency and yeah. then use it for other implementations? That whole sort of argument that seems to be really big in the community yeah. right now. Absolutely. I think totally it is. Totally, yeah. And, and the, the article I uh, recommended on this, that of course is just coming from one side of that, by this character, I'm assuming, of course, it must be a pseudonym, who calls himself Joe Coyne. Um, <laughs> but he has the, the clearest response from, from a certain position on this, I think, which is, which is to say, Bitcoin is the only thing that is actually building a blockchain of any seriousness. And the whole, the, the, the whole thing is a technological and economic loop. And if you think that you can therefore pull it apart, and like throw Bitcoin on the trash and keep the Bitcoin, uh, keep the blockchain. You're not seeing that fundamental nonlinearity. You're not seeing the fact that this weaves together technological process and economic incentives, and that that entanglement is what Bitcoin is about. Um, so um, I, I think that's a, a crucial thing, and absolutely, I think it ties in with this debate, which is a fascinating debate. And I'm not at all wanting to suggest that the other side of the debate lacks interesting points. Although I suspect that some of their most interesting points are strategic. You know, I think there's a lot of reason. If you want to mainstream Bitcoin, it makes a lot of sense to make those arguments even insincerely. You know, the argument that there is this new infrastructural unstoppable revolution happening that we're calling blockchain and it just happens to be carried by Bitcoin in the same way that um, ballpoint pens were carried by Biro at a certain point. Making that argument is a very good mainstreaming rhetorical strategy whether you really however sincere you are about it um, because I think that it diffuses a certain amount of resistance at an early early stage. I guess I can't help thinking as well. Um, just back to that Delanda paper that Jason reminded me of, and. There is this real linking of, yes, technological concerns to game theory and um, optimization of um, incentives. However, then there's many sort of newer, or even not so new, say, Veblen and Bichlein and Nitzer, which actually state that there is the, the ideal of the market 
as conceived by the you know by the libertarians um, is very different to what actually happens um, and the way it's manipulated and the way price itself is a power is is a dynamic of power. Um, so the like you mentioned the possibility of the U.S. purchasing all the bitcoins that would not at all seem something improbable if it would be gaining traction. I mean, there is even a case to state that they bombed Libya because Libya was refusing to accept U.S. dollars for its oil. Right. So, um, at, while in, in the pure world of game theory, all of those arguments stand, um, yeah. there is this really interesting notion of how actually markets operate and that very um, incestuous and perverse relationship that the state has to them, whether it yeah. is explicitly pro-market. Yeah. I mean, I'd only say about that that I don't think that by widening the discussion in that way that you're moving beyond game theory. I think you're just in more complex, tangled yeah. games. You know, I mean, the state is a, is a, a player of games just the same and, and all the agents in the state. I mean, we have to get into complicated public choice type discussion about really who are the agents in the state, what are their, their interests. There's a, it, it would be naive in the extreme to think that the public pronouncements of the interests and identity of the state as whatever, as a servant of the people or the representation of the people, these, these kind of convenient notions for PR purposes are very accurate descriptions of the about the real structures of agency that we're dealing with here, you know. Um so I, I would definitely totally support the um relevance of all of those questions. Absolutely, yes. And uh, I, I like um what you mentioned, that last paper you posted, it is absolutely true. You cannot separate Bitcoin from the blockchain due to the incentives and the way it's actually built in. Um, and it leads me to think of actually um, Tor, the Tor anonymizing software and the way actually the US Navy was heavily involved in it and even how Snowden was intimately involved in it. And yeah. while you can't remove, um, and the reasons for doing that was because they wanted secure communications but didn't want to be the only ones using it because the network signatures would be too obvious. <laughs> um, yeah. So the interesting thing is how how, however, back to algorithmic governance is the blockchain is a completely transparent and peer-to-peer -peer, um, mode of operation. And it's very possible, hopefully, that people will take that very concept and repurpose something. For example, with Tor, there is manipulation of exit nodes. Um, we know that. We know that the biggest exit nodes are actually run by <laughs> um, secret service agencies. So. Yeah. Yeah, while, while you can't just split out the blockchain um, from Bitcoin, I really hope that it will lead to to new forms of absolutely transparent forms of, of the paranoia never ends to an extent. The geeks they are paranoid, and they rightly so should be paranoid because, you know, yeah. even like the comparison of Silk Road, in the traditional world, you go to your street dealer, you do the transaction. If you do the transaction fine, you're probably in the clear. If you go down the Silk Road path, um, the paranoia 
the speculative paranoia of this scenario never ends because has your computer been compromised? Has the address you used been compromised? Has the dealer you've used been compromised? Um, so that those levels of paranoia enter wholly new sort of cybernetic, <laughs> yeah, nested layers. Yeah, I, I wanted to I wanted to ask something, also, or maybe make a comment, which is even if Bitcoin does not become dominant monetary form, it is is it possible to suggest that? Just with the kind of philosophical shift it does in the way not only we understand what money is, but how we understand the entire the entire process of doubling and tripling and this loop, that it will somehow, if we end up with the explosion of fiat currency, it would help us establish something else that is neither Bitcoin and nor gold, old, old gold standard, but it's something new that is inspired by Bitcoin that will then be, you know, that's where you will get to see the potentials of Bitcoin, not necessarily in the Bitcoin itself, but what Bitcoin, Bitcoin philosophically, philosophically does to the idea of value, money, but also how we conceive of systems that will then sort of like replace fiat currency rather than just direct Bitcoin replacing it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would need to really see what concretely was being suggested in terms of the, you know, if we're saying that this something beyond Bitcoin, Bitcoin 2.0, what is it that would be... Uh, Changed? Do you think, Mo, that would would make it a superior well model? As, as you know, there's like there's like a huge desire by libertarians, at least in U.S., if not elsewhere, to return to some form of solid gold standard in sure. economy. This is like reverberates in all sorts of like libertarian circles, all the way from sort of like. New World Orderist uh, uh, conspiracy theorists, you know what I mean, like Ron Paulers and all sorts of like people, right? I'm saying, yeah. like, is it isn't it like is it just coincidence that like Bitcoin will arrive right when this awareness of the problem of fiat money is kind of like popularizing in sort of like the the layman terms, and then. I'm thinking of these two together, the combination of these two might produce something. Like if if fiat currency really gets into like a huge trouble worldwide. Right. Yes. Yeah, I mean I can definitely see see everything that you're saying there, although and what I'm not seeing is what it is that wouldn't make Bitcoin the refuge that people would run to. I mean, just because one thing that comes up a lot in this, uh, we haven't said much about it, um, but is this whole notion of network effects. You know, we or we could talk about first mover advantage or various various things like this. That that the value that as you say, Bitcoin changes our understanding of money and uh, we've got a lot more to dig into on this for sure here. 
one of the things is that um, as a um, medium of exchange, as currency, as a circulatory medium, the value of a currency is completely non-linear in the sense that it's based entirely upon how acceptable it is to other people. There's just no getting beyond that absolutely fundamental circuit. I want it. I, f I will find it useful as a, as a as a as a medium of exchange if I think lots of other people also will find it useful as a system of exchange. And so it's open. It's fundamentally shaped by these virtuous and vicious circles. If I thought it was becoming unacceptable as a medium of exchange, then that would undergo. Um, it would enter into a positive loop in a in a in a negative direction and and um, and it would become self-obliterating um, and if I think that gradually more and more people are finding it of value then its value to me increases and its value to everybody increases and so these are just absolutely classic um, network effects and we have to that is the fundamental starting point if we're talking about some other system because Bitcoin is open source, everything about it is publicly accessible, it has no secrets at this level at all. All it has is history. You know, all it has is path dependency, network effects, cybernetic um, phenomena of these kind. It just is the one that got there first and has spread and has people know about and have people have accumulated and has a certain amount of investment in it. So. Um, any other replacement of Bitcoin is now has that as the threshold obstacle. You know why people, um, when they do uh, exhibit hostility to these altcoins, it's they say it's just nonsense. How could something, unless it was by an order of magnitude superior to Bitcoin, replace Bitcoin? When what it is that's actually installed. Bitcoin are these network effects. We know it's there. Everyone has it already. It's it's popular. You know, any replacement has none of that. It's starting from zero. It has. It would have to have some massive advantage that made people leave Bitcoin for this new currency. So that's why I'm asking. You know, what is the special source that could be called upon by some post Bitcoin blockchain cryptocurrency that is going to actually make it succeed where Bitcoin doesn't. And can't be accomplished by some available means that you know either directly uses or is compatible with Bitcoin like side chaining. So it's right. got to not only provide some sort of new advantage or functionality, but it's got it has to extract no advantage from doing that using the existing side chain or Bitcoin apparatus. Yeah, it's an even yeah pretty high bar to jump. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly it's saying um, you know in abstract the big, the blockchain is a good idea, but we want another blockchain. Um, Anyone could do that. I mean, the example that I was given that I really do think will do this to some extent at some point down the line is is a is a Chinese a Chinese blockchain because, as I say, they 
it, they absolutely have form on this. You know, they clone any of these things. They've got their own version of YouTube, their own version of Twitter, their own version of, uh, of um, eBay. I mean, e every single one of these um, kind of American internet giants that have all themselves grown through exactly these same kind of uh, network effects get have a Chinese clone. Um, and so I do expect a Chinese alternative to Bitcoin just on the basis of that record. But in general, I certainly don't think that there's a possibility of some spontaneously emergent Western alternative to Bitcoin saying, hey, use our blockchain rather than the blockchain we, we've got now. Um, it would have to have some unbelievably powerful promotional advantage. Um, and I think like on Igor's point, this is kind of getting into sort of slightly dark territory, but I think there clearly is reason to believe that influential parts of the covert establishment have made their peace with Bitcoin. Um, you know, that they, I think that there is a, a, a suspicious lack of um, vehement public political denunciation of Bitcoin and to me that suggests that like I think the Tor example is absolutely pertinent and I, I also find that very very helpful you know it's so obviously useful to uh, to uh, some very powerful um, interests in the current global system that it's it would be strange if, if that hadn't been developed and people had not understood that it was now part of the landscape that could be very, very valuably leveraged by them. We have about half an hour or maybe 35 minutes left of the seminar. So since nobody is asking questions, I want to go back, uh, Nick, and to the very beginning of the seminar and talk about two different times of like time binding that you often see in science fiction that are kind of related but they're different and I want to see if we can work them into the into the way we think of the arrow of time and the way you, you, you describe them you describe arrow of time and what it what it what it means when we're trying to reconstitute it in terms of Bitcoin. And these two are one will be one one example will be the example of like um, classic uh, time machine time machine situations like say a movie like Twelve Monkeys in which in which it's not that you you 
you you reverse the, the the splattering of the egg, but you but you but you reverse your own witnessing of it. Whereas you witness twice and three times the same egg being splattered without being able to intervene to stop it because the arrow of time is still going forward, right? But then it's you who are able to shift backward and see it one more time or two more times or three more times, right? It's, it's still the same arrow of time going one direction, but it's you who are able to go back and see it again without being able to intervene. The other one is sort of like the, the, the science fiction time bending, which is more sort of like a, a terminator effect, where you come from the future to the past to, in fact, rewrite the past for a particular future that you are desiring. So the future turns yeah. to past to change the past, and it is successful in doing so, which is similar to the first one I explained, but completely different in, in its outcome, right? And yeah. So in, in a way, in, in, the, in, in the second example, not only you go back to see the egg, to, not only you go back before the egg is splattered, so rather than, again, the time is, the t like, the mechanics of how egg splatters does not change, but you're able to actually stop the egg from breaking in the first place or splattering in the first place. Yeah. Wait, so in the first, in, in the Angry Monkeys example, are you able to stop the egg from splattering, or is that Terminator only? Just so I clarify the distinction you're drawing, Mo. Like, is the, the 12, 12 Monkeys, monkeys is that just, you can... No, in the, 12, in the 12 Monkey example, you're not able to stop the egg from splattering, but you learn, you learn about how, how egg got to the edge of the table for it to fall and break, so you're able to maybe clean the egg better, the right. left over from the egg on the ground, by going back and seeing how the, the breaking of the egg unfolded, you can, it can help you to try to clean up the mess on the floor or somehow like, yeah, clean it all up, right? That's, that's the whole 12 monkey thing, right? The way, the way time travel and backwardness is worked into that model of science fiction. Whereas in the, yeah. whereas, whereas in a Terminator, we all know how, what, what's different about Terminator, right? And the way time bending unfolds in Terminator. Right. So, is it, I mean, it's transmission of information back to the past. Actual causality violation happens in Terminator, whereas in Twelve Monkeys, you're going. I just I haven't seen that movie in a long time. Um, we're just talking about using iteration or looping to increase the the efficiency of information extraction from the yes. past. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Um. I mean, yeah. This is fascinating, but it's obviously difficult to push into without getting deep into time travel mechanics. Um, I mean, yeah, obviously on the other side of these extreme science fiction-esque models, there's um, real, well, I will say real time travel. I mean, or the, in the sense that there are convergent waves. I think that's beyond any any doubt. And a, re a convergent wave um, is equivalent to an action of the future upon the past 
um, the two descriptions are absolutely identical and so as soon as you have a convergent wave you have a time anomaly but as we were seeing if you if you build that step by step out of the history of statistical mechanics or thermodynamics you can see that those time anomalies are like contained vortices within this entropic current so you know the river of time is going down but within that river there are these vortical sub patterns of convergence where complexity is being assembled rather than destroyed and is actually feeding off the kind of wider enveloping current now those type of time anomalies not, are not only possible I would say they are manifestly taking place and so the question is what, what are the steps by which we get from those across to these science fiction-esque models like if I can just you know more specifically address the, the figures that you were using here Mois is like if you say we could stop the egg splatting well if the egg splatting is our model our figure or image of entropy then that isn't at all what is possible in this scientific story you know you cannot reduce entropy by through uh, some kind of anomalous time process it's rather that within the current of entropic process there are these vortical swirling um, anomalous processes all entropy driven all driven by smashed egg power um, and just allow interesting stuff to happen within that that vortex you know the, the the Sun I guess is the kind of giant egg smashing machine and, and downstream of the Sun we can have these these eddies and loops and, and coils that, that that provide us with these time anomalies so um, I guess I'm just it's like I wouldn't I don't want to be dogmatic about how what kind of time anomaly is actually imaginable but I'm cautious about moving or about normalizing these extreme science fiction models as the actual as the actual diagram or description of a time anomaly rather than being theatrical dramatic images of time anomaly that are actually pasted over something else and something that is is um, much better understood the reason I brought them up was not to suggest that they're they're the they're the dominant model or something to look at but like as extremes they have something to teach us about how time bending works and how we can think of Bitcoin otherwise I completely agree with you I mean I think if we are going to be in the Bitcoin system of this of course we're already embedded thermodynamically like the whole Bitcoin system whatever it becomes even if it takes over the earth is is embedded within these deeper thermodynamic processes and, and so we, we have a certain amount of latitude and we can certainly imagine a situation in which um, the Bitcoin the, the blockchain 
construction of history um, is established in a transcendental relation to anything that is operational in a human nervous system. You know, that, that our human understanding of time and our human construction of time is something that is downstream of an advanced blockchain synthetic temporality and that that synthetic temporality which would be more real than anything that we have intuitive access to at this stage as a as a model or construction of time could obviously be subjects of forms of extreme nonlinear subversion so I mean it's not at all that I want to say we can't explore this avenue I think I think we, we, we certainly can but uh, the point that I wanted to make right at the start with this is that if we're talking about time anomaly we want to be talking about time and unless we have some kind of foundational sense of tense irreversible temporality then we just lose time entirely you know if we win time anomaly by losing time we're not really we're not getting where we, we want to be um, so it seems to me that those crude directional intolerant you know non-linear non-linearity intolerant aspects of the blockchain actually are a foundation for exotic time phenomena rather than something that is obstructing them or which is kind of one would reasonably want to see dissolved into into something more uh, strange um. I don't know if you saw my comment about the Terminator movies and the way there's um, there's a sense in which there's cyber you know there's a cybernetic loop happening as well as some you know sort of uh, grossly over dramatized like science fictional a causality like in the sense that every intervention into the past by this future technology you know from either quote unquote side but you know the human side thinks of itself as a side. Um, speeds up Skynet's emergence timeline. So instead of bootstrapping just from the raw computer science, now human engineers in Skynet's prehistory have an example of its future technological right. development that speeds it up. So is there a sense in which that's what's going on in teleological convergent waves, at least in science and in maybe financial speculation and in speculation about you know, the future of blockchains and of Bitcoin and so forth, where a model of how it's going to turn out improves the efficiency of design, of design and optimization processes and usage yeah, in the yeah. present, and so sort of like brings about that future theory that you were looking for, assuming your criteria uh, for yeah. speculating about it had some bearing on reality. Um, yeah. And is that something that the block, that this technology, the blockchain paradigm, could then be used or expected to, to speed up, to find a way sure. of tightening that teleological loop. Yeah, sure. Sure. I mean, the example people often give uh, as a really down-to-earth example of this is Moore's law, which obviously, you know, what kind of law is that? The, the point is, as soon as it was described, it, it became a roadmap, it became a program, and it became self-confirming. You know, infotech companies began deliberately to 
organize their activities and schedule their development processes in terms of this curve um, and so it became something that you can say again it's a perfectly equivalent vocabulary that you can say Moore's law teleologically descended back in time to to realize itself as a kind of um, acceleration of infotech development I mean if you just ran through it as a set of equations there's no difference between those two descriptions they're perfectly uh, interchangeable so I, I would definitely uh, subscribe to, to that Jake that was really good thank you so much yeah absolutely what Nick what I mean I can think of various partial examples of this but what is, what is the equation language in which you would describe that kind of retrojection I mean, does cybernetics, like I guess second-order cybernetics uh, as it exists yeah. now, sort of pr provide the formal means of doing that? Um, yes. I don't know. Actually, this is an interesting question. I mean, I would, I would. I don't think it's a second-order. No, it'd be first order. I think when when Jake says second order cybernetic, he's meaning um, uh, positive feedback oriented cybernetics. Is that is that right, Jake? Um. Well, so there's that, and then there's also second order cybernetics is used to describe those in which you have an observer, you know, in the loop, and so that's another relay for transmitting for another you know loop relay for transmitting information, and so if we thought of the you know, the scientist or the technologist or, you know, whatever is standing in for that second-order observer. And then I know that there's, I don't know, I've got a couple of papers saved to read about third-order cybernetics, and I'm not even sure what that's supposed to entail. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but something like that, you know, I mean, if it's all relatively formalized, then, yeah. I don't know, is that what you need to, to represent? I think it's definitely the case that the, the Santa Fe Institute is explicitly focused on this problem and their sense of uh, adequate formalization is the one that I would probably accept as being authoritative and I don't know how much consensus there is there uh, on this question um, I, I think it is something that is very concretely being uh, developed um, because as I say I think I think you know, thematized as a consistent attention to the phenomenon of convergent waves, it's something that has extraordinary consistency as a kind of research objective. Even people will, will continually transform the vocabulary and articulate it in different senses. And of course, for reasons that we've at least slightly touched upon, teleological language tends to be extremely unpopular. Um, because there's something offensive to the modern spirit in that vocabulary. But however it's articulated, the actual positive research program is inexorable. You know, it is itself a, a kind of core manifestation of this, of this teleological process, I would say.
I have a question on um, a quite a quite a tangent, but I am going back to a couple things you said, Nick, about uh, how Bitcoin could be anti-democratic, and I took you to be associating democracy with necessary social institutions, and what I'm wondering, I guess, from the point of view of political theory, can what kind of democracy might be relevant to a technology like Bitcoin, a digital currency, um, which is still anti-institutional, anti-third party, but nonetheless um, democratic. Right. And I'm even thinking to what extent could yeah. a kind of democratic principle be built into the technology um, as a second kind of question. Yeah. I think there's, there's a lot there's a lot in that. I mean, obviously, democracy is a. If if we're within modernity, democracy and teleology, it seems suddenly to occur to me, I have sort of opposite polarity. I mean, teleology is always going to be stigmatized, um, and democracy is always going to be valorized. You know what I mean? So mm. almost any program is 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 can be expected to kind of cash itself out as having some kind of democratic um, legitimacy or democratic warmth behind it in all kinds of ways and and I've certainly seen hardcore Bitcoin advocates couching their program in this language very enthusiastically you know? so there's a necessity for a certain kind of caution about this but when I'm sort of talking about it being um, offensive to a certain kind of democratic uh, agenda mm -hmm. It's because of the very notion of peer uh, non-interference on peer-to-peer -peer relations. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the notion that there is no social answerability in a private contract within a within a pure peer-to-peer -peer network. So, so democracy is standing in for social answerability. In the sense that whatever the whatever the broad consensus of feeling in, in society is, whatever dominant and majority opinion is, whatever has been even processed through even more um, for any kind of social process of, of of opinion formation is all strictly excluded from consideration by we could say the notion of algorithmic governance, that it is just politically closed. And once you've got the protocol, there's no longer any openness at all to, there's no political sensitivity by design in the system. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so this also ties to the, to the two dimension of money, a store of value medium of exchange that on the level of the medium exchange, commercially, Bitcoin is totally open. Like there's, it must be the case that every time there is our Bitcoins moved around within the system, it corresponds to some latching or attachment of that system onto the wider social field. Otherwise, why am I giving you Bitcoins? You've done something for me on the outside, you know, you've given me some commodity, you've provided some service, information, whatever it is, it's something beyond 
the Bitcoin uh, circulation that has taken place. That's and, and and that is being reflected by the fact that there's a Bitcoin transaction registered on the on the blockchain. So it's commercially open. It's a synthesizer commercially that's constantly. It can only develop by constantly uh, synthesizing itself with with transactions on the outside but it's politically closed in the sense that there is no the, the, the selling point of it and why people if insofar as they do trust it as a store of value is there cannot be any political decision to devalue your bitcoins to change their value to redistribute them to, to engage in any political discussion mm. whatsoever mm. about your Bitcoin stash. The system precludes that being even possible. Um, you know, unless obviously we get back to this whole fifty-one percent attack type thing. But then, what's even the fifty-one percent attack is a fifty-one percent attack of computing power that has completely displaced um, any conventional democratic notion of, of the equal human individual as a unit of, of democratic decision-making. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so am I, maybe I'm just sort of naive here, but isn't the very notion of a peer-to-peer -peer system in some minimal sense a kind of democratic principle in and of itself? I mean, yes, if it only remains at the level of peer-to-peer, -peer, but with but with Bitcoin, you have you have this blockchain building a history, building pyramids of wealth and value, mm -hmm. in which the more these pyramids are built, the more asserting they are in terms of determining the peer-to-peer -peer relationship, right? So it's really like it's like it's like the democ it's like the democracy yeah. of uh, the it's like the the democracy of the of the, the survival of the fittest. Well, it's the democracy <laughs> of the marketplace. Quite literally, it's the democracy yes. of the marketplace. And and the cusp on this is, is exactly both of you. I think are, are spot on on this because the cusp is the principle of uh, formal equality. Now you can say formal equality is a democratic principle, and you can say, as obviously the whole history of left criticism is, is that, that it, it's substantially a deeply anti-democratic anti principle. You know, I mean, Marx is obviously just to take the most obvious example, extremely explicit about this. He says, you know, of course, formally, the the the, the factory owner and the worker are equal, and they they and they have a peer-to-peer -peer contract where the factory worker says yes I mean they're both as legal subjects they both have right to kind of take the contract to a court of law they to be judged on the same criteria all of this kind of thing and Marx I think you know is to be respected on the fact he says forget about you know really try and shelve these issues about um, you know the, the system being corrupt or the the, the judge being in the pocket of the capitalist or all of these, says that's all distraction. You know, you don't have to move beyond this basic point of the peer-to-peer -peer relation is itself due to its pure
pure formality already the problem from his point of view and from the point of view of the left. So, you know, I think this is why you can have a, a, a kind of discourse, a, a positive promotional discourse on Bitcoin couched in the, in the language of democracy for exactly, exactly the reason you said it. Because they, everyone is equal, everyone's a node, everyone's wearing a mask, we don't know who anybody is, there's no discrimination, you know, anyone can be owl head. Um, you know, in that level, if that's what you mean, it's totally democratic. But, you know, on the other side, as Mo's saying, as the whole history of left criticism of this modernist capitalist teleology has always said, you know, the peer-to-peer -peer relation um, as something that wants to abstract itself from and algorithmically preclude social intervention is the problem, you know, that is the, the target that, that they have in their, in their sites. I mean, um, and it's maybe, 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 the, maybe the example of the history of campaign funding can kind of like shed some light on that, you know what I mean? At least in the last 15 years, because there were some reforms prior to the first Bush term or right after the first Bush term, I don't know, that like tried like for the last time that tried to put some kind of like limit on on wealthy people intervening in the democratic process failed. And now we're at the stage where like like blatantly the more money you have, the more controlling you become of the outcome of the election through campaign funding. And the argument put forth for it is precisely that those who have more money should have more say in politics. Mm. Or I mean, that is a form of market democracy itself. That like, why shouldn't the Coach brothers, or or Sheldon Anderson, or whoever it is, not determine the fate of American politics more than some welfare recipient who doesn't even put one dollar into campaign funding? Mm -hmm. Well, and without even you know without even requiring them to make that argument explicitly, just the, the general comment, you know, what John Roberts wrote in, uh, um, what John Roberts wrote in that Supreme Court opinion, you know, essentially was that there is a formal identity between money and speech, or at least that money is a species of speech. And that actually, I think, Nick, that really does have an interesting, um, yeah, totally. an interesting correspondence with Bitcoin, Absolutely. with the idea of, you know, the monetary incentive yeah. to, you know, generate consensus. Yeah, totally, totally. And obviously a lot of these altcoins are information systems that have just accepted this coin suffix because of the way it works as a um, system for the distribution and validation of information. It's not, it's not a currency, it's, a, it's an abstraction beyond a currency. So I think that's totally right. You can't um, you can't distinguish between money and speech at this level of abstraction of the system. They both are particular forms of information distribution. Now, now speaking about now speaking about money and speech, there was also this other totally like diversionary, totally like I shouldn't be asking this, like bringing this into the picture, but because I'm like a bad student. I love to sort of like <laughs> waste the class time, but like, but like, but we all know how important graphic cards are to sort of like the the Bitcoin mining, right? 
and, mm-hmm. and the, you know what I mean? There's this other equivalency between sort of like the digital image economy and then Bitcoin, right? Because it's like, it's like if it's more profitable to run Photoshop, this 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 a graphic card will run Photoshop. But then at some point, you actually make more money not running Photoshop, but you actually make more money like this 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 uh, what do you call a graphic card running uh, like mining Bitcoin. So it's like right. it's like there's also another another tension there between sort of like between sort of like and how how how. If speech is money, then basically image processing is money. Sure. Too. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Bitcoin mining makes image processing fungible with money. Oh. That so. And like the leap my mind made, and the theory of it may have nothing to, to do with it, but was through um, you know Salarzian picturing that uh, Rosa Negrostani was talking about in the last seminar that I audited, is this the sort of um, the fungibility of image processing? If we could generalize that at all to um, to datafication and sort of the registration and verification of scientific data, is that sort of um, a model for coinage on production and verification of scientific data, yeah. so putting science in the blockchain, being able to incentivize that and distribute incentives for verifying and repeating scientific observations, yeah. that sort of thing, like maybe under a sort of like digital micro-intellectual property, intellectual property micro-payment yeah. kind of regime. I mean, it doesn't even have to be, I mean, obviously it could be, I know if it's bound to intersect with intellectual property issues, but it doesn't have to in any narrow sense be an intellectual property issue. Because it's just about um, validation, informational validation. So at the point where there is an output from an experimental result, um, there is no reason in principle why there shouldn't be some kind of coin, you know, science coin, nature coin, I don't know what you call it, that, that simply blockchains that information and timestamps it and, and hashes it in that system and and that becomes your public archive of scientific bottom line experimental scientific reality you know that is nature as as it is accessible to us at that point um, and there's no getting beyond it I mean it's already the case that you know in principle we say well what is nature the, the absolute ultimate step of that is it is the outcome from the Hadron Super Collider um, honestly reported you know there's this there's this trust issue that is not a crisis normally at that level of, of, of physics but in principle it's a it's exactly the same kind of trust issue like you know we believe you when you tell us that when these two particles was collided together that this was the output from that experiment and so as soon as you've got that trust issue you've got a, a coin waiting to happen we've got climate denialism for example potentially. yeah for sure so so a highly conflicted science like climate science would be a really natural candidate for a, a blockchaining a, a, a scientific enterprise for, for sure. 
um, because pe because the, all the statements in that field are so contested and so subject to ideological um, difficulty. And in the sense that that contestation, um, in the sense that that contestation is pretty much all external to the discipline itself. I mean, ninety-eight percent of climate scientists are, you know, are in the consensus about climate disruption and disaster and so yeah. forth. And that the rest of it, you know, is something that emerges from from capital's incentives, you know, to certain researchers to dispute the conclusions, or comes from, you know, religious ideology and so forth. Does that kind of indicate a sense in which the scientific community or the climate science community is is acting like a blockchain already that there's something yeah there's already an equivalence to base formalization on because the way in which they um, sort of validate the interpretation and interrelationship of past results is based on this you know majority consensus am I kind of reaching there I don't know I think it's complicated I think scientists are amphibious you know that on one hand they're in some kind of direct contact with raw experimental data and on the other hand they are socially uh, accredited as interpreters of that data and when the science becomes controversial that second role then becomes caught up in the controversy and obviously scientists are people and they have their own visions and they want to interpret the data and they can't live in a world of raw data. So, I mean, climate science is an absolute classic example of that, it seems to me, you know, where on the one hand, there's a sense of like, what, what are the bottom line raw facts that we're faced with here? And then alongside that, what are the big narratives, the pictures that, that make sense in terms of that information? And it seems to me that the, the data is what goes on to the blockchain. And the, the interpretation is in the role of a, a, a Bitcoin exchange or one of these ancillary peripheral institutions that um, you know, make sense of something, do something with this raw information, latch it onto something. So like kind of the the exchange rate for science coins is like as a vote for confidence in the in the data or in the interpretation yeah no i think like the interpretation that. would go beyond it i think it would just purely have to be confidence right. in raw data you know this is what came out of this particular um, experimental device this is actually just the information content from this particular sensor or this particular device and as soon as you move into interpretation then I think you're in a different type of consensus I don't know you see if we looking at this thing about mechanization could you mechanize narrative consensus I'm not I'm not sure you, you look at what Bitcoin is doing all the consensus concerns is this transaction this exchange of bitcoins from account A to account B happened at this point in time, time stamped. That's it. Um, you know, it's it's something that is so lacking in narrative overlay 
uh, it can have this hard mechanical consensus behind it. But as soon as you're saying something like, you know, this level of shrinkage of Antarctic ice tells us this story about what is happening, I think you're moving beyond something that could be readily mechanized. So if there aren't any questions, we're sort of like at the end of the seminar session. If there aren't any, Nick, do you have any kind of like final remarks about like any kind of like requirement stuff or any other thing or Laura or anybody else who want to ask a question? Because I saw your camera come on, Laura, so I thought maybe you wanted to talk or something. No. Unmute yourself if you want. Yeah, I'm I'm freaking out. No, um it's kind of two thirty here like in Sydney, so I right. guess I lost that bit of the city that I had. It's, <laughs> um yeah. No, yeah. I was interested in the in the issue of like the like what were you saying about Bitcoin being politically closed and Ian's question about like the like Bitcoin being anti-democratic and and um, and peer-to-peer -peer and so I guess my one question was like okay Bitcoin is um, politically clo uh, politically closed although he's got a politics right which is what because no technology is, is neutral right like to my understanding yeah, sure. so I was kind of thinking is it what I'm, I guess, what I understood, please correct me if I'm wrong, is that this idea of this techno, techno commercial structure is kind of trying to do better what neoliberalism has been trying to do for the past, I don't know, 70, 50, 70 years or something, by getting rid of, of the state, right? Completely, rather than just trying to do with it in in ways. Yeah. So that anyway, is that is this some kind of methodological individualism that we're talking about when we're talking about Bitcoin in these terms? Or I think the only thing the is it's so it's so neutral that it doesn't need to have a stance on that because because its agents, its nodes are, as we were saying, masks. You know, they're totally abstract nodes. They could be anything. You know, they could be they could be a, co a collective group. They could be an individual person. They could be another species. They could be an alien. I mean, it's just absolutely abstract. So it's individual in the sense that it counts as a peer within the network. It's an account um, that when it's making a transaction, it counts as a, as one party to a transaction. But but if you then try to add some deeper sort of sociological or psychological content to that node, then you're stepping beyond what the system uh, allows, you know, I mean, you're, you're into a sort of interpretive activity that is exceeding the terms of the Bitcoin protocol itself. Mm, well, yeah, but then what would be, for instance, like a political scenario at the moment in which Bitcoin becomes, I don't know, adopted in, I don't know, 
in perhaps a wider terms, uh, knowing that again we have people like obviously I don't know the Winkelbos twins or uh, Mark Andersen that uh, own already like a, you know a large part right. of the market capitalization and stuff. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean we we had we had obviously a, a, a discussion of this. I think very close at least to this question, which is that. If you want to get, um, if you want to optimize your position in Bitcoin, what do you do? Like as we were saying, it only takes. And this figure isn't quite random; it's roughly right, maybe a bit of an exaggeration. Five billion dollars, you could buy every Bitcoin on the planet. So why don't people do that? You know, they don't do it because they're playing a complicated game where they know if they did that they would actually destroy entirely the value of their Bitcoin holding. You know, it would be a suicidal move. So I think the system itself only has that as a um, as a control on the kind of issues that you're talking about. I mean, and for obviously for some people it's a totally weak and inadequate control, but that's the control that is there are these game theoretic controls that you cannot you cannot optimize your wealth within Bitcoin by simply buying up the whole of Bitcoin. It will not circulate. It cannot function as a circulating medium and therefore propagate and develop unless it is at least distributed to the extent that people are using it and have the confidence that they're not simply buying into the plutocratic dreams of some small numbers of individuals. And yeah. so, that's a sen so that's a sense in which it does sort of posit or project at least a model of an agent in, in the sense that it put whatever, you know, the AI, the person, the yeah. network of people yeah. behind it has to obey the constraints of being a certain kind of partial agent. Yeah. It assumes economic rationality. On the on the part of its of its nodes. I mean, you can see that already in the in the paper. I think it would be you you couldn't you couldn't predict how these nodes were going to behave or how miners were going to behave or how any of the agents in the system were going to behave unless you assumed that they were engaged in economic maximization as a basic imperative. And that is what Satoshi Nakamoto assumes about them. So I guess but the question would be, is there a way to not assume that or to vary those assumptions and then see a different kind of protocol? Not necessarily one that was viable, but could you construct in a relatively formal way variations on the protocol that reflected different sets of assumptions about economic actors or network actors? Well, it would be an interesting undertaking. I mean, it's certainly the case that in all kinds of places in the in the paper, it, it's clear that Satoshi Nakamoto is basically Austrian in economic philosophy. There's, I will dig out these clue things, and but it's completely clear. I think that that's the fundamental background of the thing and um, so I think it's no great leap to assume that his position is praxeological that it's just you can 
simply assume that any economic agent has to have a certain set of um, rational restrictions on, on their behavior um, that you can assume whatever you're trying to do you know even if even if all even if everything you're trying to do is simply in order to accumulate resources for some charitable purpose or to build some so collective social um, enterprise or whatever you want to do it's it's still the case that the only way that you can realize those goals are by these fundamental praxeological structures um, you know and that to assume that someone would actually want to behave in such a way that they dissipate their holding of bitcoins for no reason is something that can be safely um, safely dismissed that that I think is the position the paper takes but but as we've already seen that that doesn't exclude other kinds of complex social games for instance you could have completely rational reasons for wanting to destroy the whole of the Bitcoin protocol um, that would even in na quite a narrow sense be economically rational but would not be registered fully within the Bitcoin system itself Actually, I've got two little just me methodical questions or points. One's a question. The, the point is just to thank everybody for their for their um, contributions in the classroom, and I hope that people will keep that up. I found it really interesting. I haven't. I can't pretend that I've processed everything, and lots of the things people have said is it, complicated and thought provoking, and is not something to be digested immediately. But I'm greatly appreciative of everything that people have put there and, and I would definitely promise to, to, to attend to it carefully. Um, and the other thing is the sidebar group chat bar. I know that that is somehow reflected in this thing but I sort of feel do we get the full do we get the full sidebar on in the classroom? Is that something only, that... Only if, only if I copy and paste it oh, into the okay. as a post, which I do. Like I just made a post of right. all the sidebar so far in the in the classroom, and then last week yeah. I was afraid that I might lose it, so I did it in two sections. Okay. Part okay. So I appreciate that one too. Under there. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks so much for doing that. No, it's just that, that obviously I don't really have time to follow the sidebar discussion mm -hmm. while we're talking. Yeah, um, just but I can see it's tantalizingly interesting, and, and I just hope I, I'm going to get a chance to um, to pick it up mm -hmm. later. Yeah, I'll try to preserve as much as I can. I mean, it's 100% preserved so far for the three sessions we oh, had. Okay, thanks so much for doing it's, it's own It's its own blockchain. I'm, I'm <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's great. Thanks. Okay, so it so uh, if there aren't any more questions, we can leave the rest of the discussion to the uh, classroom and let Nick go and rest. It's been, we kind of went 20 minutes, maybe not 20, but like definitely 15 minutes over time. With you, Nick. So okay. thanks again. Yeah. Thanks everybody. Thank you. Yeah. That was great. And thanks okay. to all the participants. Particularly, I 
appreciate Jake's kind of like um, thinking with me about like that um, the science fiction and temporality thing. I'm gonna go back and and um, that was a little over my head, but I'm really excited to to watch some of the movies again. You guys are talking yeah, about yeah, and the books also. Jake's referencing a, a really yeah, Glass House and the Peripheral Key. You should really read them because they're both also just awesome. Really Did good. You, what what were, what were the names? Are they on the sidebar? Right now. Cool. Yeah, I definitely okay, will. Okay, I'm going to post that too. Okay, thank you, everyone. Okay. I'm going to stop the broadcast and say goodbye. Yes, have a great week, everybody. Bye. Bye, Laura. Okay. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Later.